This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello everyone and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Lee Randall and I am thrilled to bits to be able to now say I shared a stage with Mira Sayal. <laughs> These are the kinds of things that happen at book festivals. It's like it's not real life. Um, a little bit of housekeeping first. If you can keep the phone usage either minimal or non-existent, that would be brilliant. Later, when we do the question and answer session, it'll be less intrusive to other people if you suddenly start tweeting about how fabulous and wonderful we are. <laughs> um, Afterwards, I'll take Mira into the signing tent where you can purchase the book and get it signed and anyone who didn't get a chance to ask a question during the session could try to work one in then. What we're going to do today is um, Mira will read a bit, we'll talk about the book and then we'll offer you all the chance to pitch in and ask questions. So without further ado, let me do the official introductions. Um, Mira is the acclaimed actor and writer star of Goodness Gracious Me and the Kumars at number 42, and the author of two previous novels, Anita and Me and Life Isn't All, Ha Ha, He He. And because she knows how to make an entrance, she made us wait 16 years <laughs> for this new book, which is called The House of Hidden Mothers. Now, this is a book that is about many, many things. It's about getting older. It's about making babies. It's about raising the babies you made previously. Um, it's about coexisting with aging parents. It's about having a younger lover. It's about the surrogacy industry and Indian families and how they function. Uh, it's about the relationship between East and West and women's status and a good deal more. And all in 400 pages. All in 400 <laughs> exquisitely crafted pages. <laughs> so without even further ado, why don't we turn over to you, Mira, and... Um, Maybe you'll do some reading for us, and I don't know if you want to set up the plot more, sure, or do you want sure. me to set the plot up? Um, no, I'm happy no, to you. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> oh, my goodness, wait. Can I just say one thing? I'm a nugget. This is Joe Ross. She is signing for BSL. I wrote it down, and I forgot to say it. Apologies. Not at all. Very important. Um, it's really lovely to be here, especially after so long. Um, I will set up uh, which part of the book this is. Um, the story centers around a 48-year-old British Indian woman called Sharma, who has had a first unhappy marriage and has a 19-year-old daughter, Tara, from that, and has finally found real love with Toby, who is 12 years her junior. And at the age of 48, he's desperate for a child and can't have one naturally. And having exhausted all the other options, her um, very posh and connected friend Priya has suggested surrogacy. And this is a section where Priya has um, introduced Sharma to the website that she's found for the clinic in India. And the section moves on to when Sharma begins discussing the option of surrogacy with Toby. Priya clicked onto the link and waited as the music snapped off, and the face of a fine-boned, arm-and-eyed Indian woman filled the screen, the swathes of grey at her temples at odds with the healthy, youthful glow emanating from her face. Hello, 
I'm Dr. Renu Parsi. Welcome to the Parsi Clinic. She began in a deep, husky voice, more suited to a chocolate advert than a surrogacy clinic. <laughs> we are one of India's leading centers for ART, that is, assisted reproductive technology, and we hope by the end of this short presentation, you will see why. Dr. Parsi's dulcet tones narrated the story of how she had resigned from her previous post as a consultant obstetrician at one of Delhi's leading private hospitals to found the Parsi Clinic, which had always been a special dream of mine, fueled by the misery she continually encountered from the infertile couple seeking her advice. In India, we now have an infertility rate of 15% and climbing, though still lower than the average rate in the Western world. Dismayed by the rising rate of unwanted pregnancies amongst the poorer, uneducated women she treated, she had the idea that surrogacy would be the perfect and humane solution for both parties. This is a life-changing and life-enhancing experience for everyone involved, for the couples who long for a baby and for the women who carry the child for them. The fees that our surrogate mothers receive enable them to transform their lives, to buy their own homes, educate their children. It gives them financial independence they couldn't get any other way. As for our couples who visit us from all over the world, because India is now the center for ART in the world, they not only get the gift of a longed-for child, they also know that their money is going to help the woman who has given a new life to them. The picture suddenly sped forward as Priya fast-forwarded with a perfectly buffed nail. Oh, you don't need to know all this boring info. She's basically just saying that the clinic adheres to the newly implemented government guidelines on ART. Not all of them do. What guidelines exactly? Sharma was irritated, frustrated by the glimpses of gleaming white labs and PowerPoint presentations that jumped across the screen. Okay, right, well, basically, surrogacy is unregulated in India right now. That's why it's so cheap. There are guidelines laid down rather than laws, so it varies from clinic to clinic, yeah. I chose this one because they seem to be long-established and well-organized, have a good success rate, and are pretty strict in their parameters. So, for example, all the surrogates have to be married, have to have a clean bill of health and medical history, have to have had two healthy births themselves, agree to not have sexual relationships during the pregnancy... Nine months with no sex. <laughs> Strange how unfair this now seemed to Sharma, whereas during her last marriage it would have seemed perfectly reasonable. <laughs> I know, chimed Priya. I mean, nine months not shagging your husband, fair enough, but they have to promise not to do it with anyone. That's dedication. <laughs> and they have to, have to have signed permission form from their husbands to offer themselves up for surrogacy at all. Well, that's a bit dodgy, isn't it, said Sharma. What about the woman's right to choose, own her own body and all that? It's India, darling. Most of these women are from rural areas. I don't think it would go down too well with the local menfolk if they snuck off and came back up the duff with a foreigner's sprog, do you? <laughs> Even if it will pay for a new tractor or whatever, it's for their protection at the end of the day. Whose? The clinic's? The woman's. Oh, you don't need to know this section about egg retrieval either, right? Because you won't be using your own? No said Sharma quietly, flinching at a sudden image of her ovaries spread out like two burnt trees with bunches of shriveled eggs swinging creakily from their branches, a mournful wind moaning through the cavern of her inhospitable womb. Lucky you, breathed Priya, because it looks bloody vile, the whole thing. You have to have three days of really painful injections which pump you full of hormones that make you bloat and gag, and then hang around for two weeks until they harvest them. They actually say harvest, like you're growing watermelons or something. 
And there's no guarantee you'll produce any Class A eggs anyway. But they offer all the options if you're both infertile. You can still make the baby. It's just that it won't actually be genetically yours. But that's the same as adoption anyway, isn't it? Priya's voice was getting louder and more excitable as she continued scrolling through the film. Sharma was relieved to see a waiter approaching with their food order, the loaded plates trailing spicy wisps of steam behind them. As he smiled and bent towards the table, Priya looked up at Sharma. But you'll still be using Toby's sperm, right? <laughs> the waiter's smile fixed itself to his face like a frightened leech. And his tray wobbled slightly, just enough to send a buttery tide of sauce over the lip of each plate. Oh, I, I'm so sorry, madam, he stuttered, reaching for a pile of paper serviettes. Priya's eyes flashed for a second as Sharma turned round. Stop it! I'm sorry, said Priya. I'm taking over as usual. I get it. She rose, grabbing a handbag. I'm going to freshen up, make a few calls. Just browse the site and tell me what you think, okay? Later on, Sharma discusses this with Toby. Toby's voice sounded gentle when he asked, so how much is this actually going to cost? Sharma shifted uncomfortably on the bed. Right, well, basically the couple, you and me, um, we would decide the exact fee with the surrogate and the clinic, but it's around between six and nine thousand pounds on average. Is that all? Toby's face broke into a beam of relief. Blimey, that's not much more than two rounds of IVF. We can afford that easily, can't we? Six grand? That's immoral. Charmer and Toby swung round to see Tara standing in the doorway, a mug of tea in each hand. Can't you knock? Sharma said, her embarrassment making her sound angrier than she felt. Firstly, can't you shut your door, mother? It's wide open. And secondly, I bought you both some tea, so you can toast my new manufactured sibling together. Enjoy. <laughs> Tara dumped the mugs on the dressing table and made for the door. Sharma called after her. Tara, we were going to sit down with you and discuss this. Tara, you're going to do it anyway, so what's the point? Tara's voice cracked with unshed tears. She was trembling with the effort of holding them back. She wanted to run straight down the stairs and into the street and keep running, just as she had done when she was eight years old and had found out that her father would not be living with them anymore. Tara, if you don't want us to go ahead with this, we won't. Toby had stood up. Tara paused in the doorway, her fists clenched. So, if I said to you right now that I'm not happy about this, you'd stop. Really? The silence was broken, broken by a sudden bestial lowing coming from the computer screen, from a slippery, just-born baby being held up by Dr. Parsi, her distinctive, soothing tones unmistakable behind her green surgical mask. She cradled the mewling child expertly in the crook of one elbow and with the other hand smoothed back strands of hair from the mother's glistening brow. The surrogate woman lay prone, eyes glazed with exhaustion, her glance flicking to the baby and then away again, quickly. Jump cut to another room, where a white couple stood expectantly in their green hospital gowns. As the door opened, they grabbed each other's hands, their surgical gloves emitting a muffled squeak. Dr. Parsi moved towards them. She might as well have been invisible, however, because both of them had their eyes fixed on the child in her arms. Congratulations, you have a healthy baby boy. The baby was fair-skinned with a faint fuzz of coppery hair. There was clearly nothing of the woman who had just given birth to him in his genes. 
the couple moved forward as one. The woman reached out and took the baby who fitted perfectly into the cradle of her arms, his cries fading slowly to whimpers as he sniffed the air, mouth open, rooting for milk blindly. Toby had witnessed this many times before in musty stables and dark, rain-sodden fields, and it never ceased to amaze him how a baby mammal of any kind took its first breath and immediately began its furious fight for survival. That's all we are, he thought, this human animal with its glorious, unstoppable greed. A muffled sob sounded next to him. Sharma was fixed on the screen, tears coursing down her cheeks. Look at them was all she could say. Joy was too short and stale a word for what illuminated the faces of the two newborn parents. A religious wonder, the relief of laying to rest years of pain and worry, the hope of a rewritten future. Sharma looked up at Tara still in the doorway and whispered, that's how I felt when I had you. She held out her arms towards her daughter. Tara took a step forward then paused. At that moment, she loathed herself almost as much as she loathed her mother. Thank you. The, the entire fertility industry, it's billion, billion pound, billion dollar industry, yeah. even just within Britain, but then you take in the overseas, the idea of fertility tourism, I read that you got the idea for this book from seeing a documentary. I did. It was completely by chance, um, knowing that I was 16 years late with my next book. And, and I hadn't really had the idea that made me want to sit down and write again. And you kind of do have to feel passionate, because it's just too hard to write a book if you don't feel that. And I was channel flicking, and I came across this really arresting image of a row of obviously poor heavily pregnant Indian women all sitting in a dormitory like a girls' boarding school. And I thought, what's this? And I continued watching, and it was a complete revelation to me. I had no idea that India's surrogacy industry was the biggest in the world, mm -hmm. worth $4.5 billion. And it's the biggest because it's the cheapest and it's yeah. unregulated. Is it still unregulated? I, I thought that they started to enact a few laws They're, in 2013, yeah. or is that not true? It's still being debated as far as I know, um, but it's, the new bill has sort of gone the other way. I mean, having been completely unregulated, they're now wanting to bring a bill in that would limit um, surrogacy to married heterosexual couples who've been married for two years at least. So from one extreme to the other, really. Did you find yourself... I want to talk a little bit later about the relationship between Sharma and her surrogate because the balance of power shifts a lot with that. But I know I found myself going backwards and forwards. Obviously, the doctor makes it sound like you're doing this wonderful, benevolent thing and you're creating jobs, <laughs> jobs for the girls. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a very invasive job. And it's all about women trading in our bodies as currency again, whether it's not prostitution, but it's still using our body to generate income. And did you find yourself going backwards and forwards on how you felt about it. I, I really did, and I'm glad you said that because I really want the reader to have that experience too. Because I have to admit, at, at the beginning, I had a completely knee-jerk reaction against it. Um, what it made me thought of, uh, think of uh, was The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Of course. And it's actually why I've begun the book with a quote from the book, from yeah. her book. Uh, I mean, I think the book was written in 1986, and it was almost prophetic because it saw mm -hmm. a dystopian future where 
rich, infertile women basically owned and enslaved the bodies of poor, fertile women. And I thought, well, this is what this is. Mm -hmm. However, having met a couple who've had two children virant in surrogates and seeing the joy it's brought them and what amazing parents they are, and having met professionals that really believe they are providing a service, it becomes a little muddier. I don't think anyone that hasn't been through the pain of infertility, unless you've known that pain, I mm -hmm. think it's, it's, it's very hard to judge what people will do to get a child. Um, it's not going to go away. It's a business. That's what it is. You can't get away from that. And given that it's not going to go away, then the best one can hope for is that you make it as safe um, and as regulated as possible to protect the rights of the surrogate mothers. Because you're right, these are women that don't have anything else to sell. It's the only thing they have of worth they, they can sell. It's it's very sobering thought. Mm. Very sobering. And, and in fact, it raises that question. And as I was saying earlier, I've, I've known people who've suffered from infertility and have gone to great lengths to create a child. Um, but it does really, we have to sit back and think how, what lengths will we go to? How much medical intervention do, is good? It's the whole medical ethics issue, yeah. isn't it? Which I kept thinking about the whole time I was reading the novel. It's like, are we going too far? What, does the benefit of there being a baby outweigh the, the medical interventions that are necessary. Well, you know, well, you certainly have cases of the woman recently, a 67-year-old woman who gave birth to quadruplets, I think, obviously not naturally, uh, with a lot of medical intervention, and you think, well, you're not actually going to be around to bring the child up. Then you have to, certainly, you have to ask that question. Um, there was a reason I made Sharma 48. In the first draft, she was 44. And the feedback I was getting back from people reading the earlier drafts was, it's not a big deal at 44 anymore. However, at 48, you begin to ask the question, are you sure? You're nearly 50. And it's certainly the question her daughter has. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the reader to have that question in, her, in their minds too. Mm -hmm. Where is the cutoff point and who's to say where the cutoff point is? But surely there has to be one. I also found myself wondering a tiny bit, perhaps in a cynical way, how much she wanted the baby to have another baby and how much she wanted the baby as, what do they call them? Uh, Glue babies. Yes. <laughs> oh, we've all done it, darling. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, it's a big mistake people make, isn't it, thinking that will bring us together when really, frankly, if you're not, if you're not stable, kids will probably tear you apart because it's really hard, isn't it? Um, yeah, but, you know... The reasons that people want children are manifest and huge and deep. Yes. And that's what I said, unless you're in it, you, I don't think you can understand it. And, you know, because the book, I mean, surrogacy really is a metaphor for a lot of the other things I wanted to talk about. You know, for women, the loss of their fertility at any age, you know, whether it comes to you too early mm -hmm. or going through your menopause is a huge thing. It's a hugely symbolic thing and it affects you in a very strange yeah. way and it makes you consider what your role is so because me and my friends were all talking about this stuff and yeah. we were going well you know on paper we're quite old but we don't feel old we don't look old our ovaries are 48 but yeah. we, we feel much younger than that but I mean those are all the issues I was really interested in bringing forth and I think the desire for a baby for a 48 year old is a really you're right what is that what is that about is that about actually just wanting to stay young, desirable, useful, yes. 
And then why are women considered not useful when they don't have fertility anymore? Yeah. That's the bigger yeah. question, I guess. Is it, is it the female equivalent of going out and buying a Porsche? <laughs> For some women, maybe. Maybe. I don't, maybe. I don't have an answer. Yeah. Don't have an answer. And you, did you, when you had the vision for the book, I know you, you've spoken often about how, especially with all the other things you do and the projects you work on, if you don't have a, that excitement about an idea, you can't get started. But once you had this idea, did it flow? Did, was it easy or did you still find it quite difficult to get tucked into the actual writing of the book? No, actually, once... Once I knew what I wanted to write about, it, it did flow, thank goodness, um, just because it chimed with so many of the things I wanted to write about. And the one thing I was really sure about, I wanted Marla, the surrogate, to be as strong and as vocal and as well-drawn as Sharma, because it was always about these two women. Yeah. I mean, what, that's a fascinating relationship. Two women in completely different circumstances, culturally, economically, who for those nine months each hold the answer to each other's dreams. Mm -hmm. That's a very enforced, intimate relationship. And then how do you walk away from that? And people do. There are some people that never even meet their surrogate. Yeah. They yeah. want the distance. There are some people that have a very intimate relationship with the surrogate. But at the end of the day, certainly with Indian surrogates, they sign every single legal right away. Away. They are literally... Receptacles? Yeah. yeah. Whereas in the West, in most countries, a sur surrogacy is an altruistic gesture. You can't be paid for it as such. You have to volunteer your services and you get medical expenses. So it's a very different relationship. And I think in most Western countries, a surrogate child can trace their mother at 18, whereas in India, mm -hmm. there's no danger of that. So you can have a very clinical, business-like relationship with your surrogate. It's amazing. But of course... Mala is so strong that we find out later in the book, and I'm not going to give anything away, that she has other things to offer that besides her womb. Well, that's the tragedy, isn't it? And I think that may well be the situation of a lot of the women that offer themselves to surrogacy. Their choices are so limited. Mala comes from a rural community where female infanticide is rife, where dowry is rife. So the minute a girl is born, she's already a burden mm -hmm. and what are her life choices and yet the tragedy of her is and the thing that just made her so wonderful to write is that she's so ballsy and she's so intelligent she really and she's is. aspirational and you think if she and Sharma if she had had Sharma's opportunities she would be running a multinational she'd be doing something wonderful yeah she would and that is the reason that the actual the two women kind of understand each other very very well because but for those sliding doors, twists of fate, that yes. took, I mean, they could have been living each other's yeah. lives. And you have a, a sub, they go back to India, and there are several subplots happening, one of which is Shama's parents live at the bottom of her garden, and it's a very close relationship. And they have many, many hundreds of years ago purchased a flat in India that is then squatted in by their relations, who then feel it's their flat. And, and you said that this actually happened in your family. Yes, yes. I mean, this is a, one bit of the book that's uh, very much inspired by real life. And it's a very, very common happening with a lot of... We're called NRIs, non-resident Indians. That's what we are. We have an emotional connection to India and many relatives there. We don't actually live there. But for my parents' generation, a lot of them sent all their money back to India for retirement homes because mm -hmm. for that generation, that was home. Yeah. That was where they wanted to retire to, 
um, have their ashes scattered in the Ganges, you know, returned to from whence they came. Mm -hmm. And for so many families, those properties that they sweated so hard to build are stolen by other family members, which is kind of what happened in, in my father's family. And it's really heartbreaking. It's not so much the economic um, betrayal. It is that those huge things of kin and blood and loss and brother versus brother and sister versus sister. And for my parents, they spent 14 years fighting a court case through the Indian courts. I mean, it really is like Bleak House. It just went on for years. Um, and even though eventually they got the flat back, it was a totally Pyrrhic victory because see. the minute they got it back, they sold it. And they said, that's the end of our connection with India. This has broken our hearts. And so it breaks the family as well, doesn't it? And split the family in half. So that, were, for me, was a very interesting subplot and reflection of all those, all those issues about belonging and home and identity uh, seen through that generation. And then for Tara's generation, where she calls home is, is also very different. Yeah. And I, I was very aware, especially, I wondered how much I was supposed to transpose what was happening in India back to Britain, especially the current Britain that we're living in, because I felt very sharply these status markers in India that seemed to be so sharply defined that people really were always assessing one another. Mm. They have this, or they look like this, or their skin is this particular shade of brown, and that means the following. And I, I wondered, were you trying to draw a parallel between, I, it feels like, I've lived in Britain almost 18 years, and it feels like it's becoming increasingly more stratified and class conscious, and, and everyone's looking at everyone else saying, well, he has this much, and she has this much, and were you drawing that parallel, or am I making this up? <laughs> um, well, I suppose I should temper everything with the fact that, I mean, the book's about to come out in India, and I think that will be very interesting because my view of India is always going to be from an NRI perspective. I don't live there. Mm -hmm. I haven't grown up there. I have a deep emotional connection to the country. I still regard it as a touchstone for many bits of my identity. But inevitably, my view of India is going to be the same as Sharma's, mm -hmm. almost as a visiting tourist, however deep my roots are. So I'll be very interested to know what the Indians think of the book. And I've said in the interviews for Indian newspapers, this is purely a British Asian, a British Indian view of India, but it's a valid one because I think for the first time, actually, I feel great parallels between, say, my cousins over in India. Mm. The disparity between us, economically, culturally, was much bigger 20 years ago. Now I feel we're all going in the same direction together. In fact, they think we're old-fashioned. I mean, I go over there and they laugh at what I'm wearing. Oh really? my God, you're wearing last season's clothes. What's the matter with you? Come <laughs> <laughs> on, put on a mini skirt. Let's have a cigarette and go to a bar. So, what? <laughs> What's happening? What? <laughs> and you realise you're living in this immigrant bubble here, yeah. you know. Um, India's, God, it's, you know, it's, it reminds me of Elizabethan England. Not that I was there, I'm not that old. But <laughs> I feel like it has that vitality, the sense of shifting boundaries and old structures crumbling and the looking outwards. And it's in fact why Tara, I won't, don't want to give away too much, oh, but increasingly no. is looking towards India for yeah. inspiration and her future. And I see that pattern in a lot of the third generation, ironically, the generation that are furthest away from India, really. 
Um, whereas my, you know, the grandparent generation have gone, we don't want to go back. The third generation, yeah. many of them are going back to India for, for work and, and opportunity. Very interesting. And also probably to connect with, with their past, don't you think, that they're looking for who, where they came from? That's, that is it to some extent, but they're also looking with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. their, their definitions of what they are culturally are, are, are they, culture shifts all the time. You know, what, what was traditional for my generation even is mm -hmm. just not the same for them. Yeah. And good. I mean, a lot of things are perpetuated in the name of tradition that are, are actually nothing to do with tradition. They're just old, bad habits. So yeah. some of them have to be looked at. Yeah. Now, you did something so bold and breathtaking towards the end of the novel. I'm not going to give away any spoilers, don't worry. But I must ask you about this because so much of this book is about the way women are treated, you know, and the horrible way, especially in India, women are treated. It's not a safe place to be a woman. And as the surrogate is giving birth, you alternate with um, the story of the poor woman who was raped on the bus and ultimately died, whose name, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce. Uh, I'm well, she was known as Nirbhaya. Okay. Her real name was Jyoti Singh. Okay. And I just wondered why you... It's beautifully, beautifully done, but it's, it's a very bold authorial choice, and I'm wondering why you made that decision. Well, it seemed to me that the reason I was interested in, in the metaphor of surrogacy in the first place is that ultimately it's about the ownership of women's bodies and the politics of fertility. And for me, somehow, there was some very... There was some metaphorical and, and maybe emotional connection between that event and, and I guess what some of the surrogacy industry represents, which is the ownership and abuse of women's bodies. Mm -hmm. And somewhere they were threaded together. I mean, you know, it does come at the end of many other oh, lines of inquiry, of, I hope. Of course. It's yes, not yes. just plonked in, because I did think long and hard about it, but that was such a huge event. It was like our version of the Arab Spring. It was huge. Not that all of this hasn't happened before and has been happening for centuries, and not that it, I must make the point, happens in every country. Yes. You know, it's one area we all have equal opportunities, believe me. Um, but there was something about this event which sparked off public riots and demands for change in a way that no other event had. Something about the brutality of it. And I, it gave me great hope, actually, to see the coming together of people all around the world, men and women, out there on the picket line saying, this has to change, finally this has to stop. Discussions are ongoing and it will take a long time. But I did see in that the generation coming up in India now who mm -hmm. are very vocal, very smart, earning a lot more than their parents, feeling bullish about the world. The two big issues for them are corruption and sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And you really feel that they're going to change things. Well, that's, that's nice and optimistic. That's very you optimistic. You have to be. Yeah. There's a huge contrast, obviously. You, you don't only write fiction. You write f drama and you, you write for you know, things to be performed. There must be the, the difference between that collaborative kind of thing that has to happen with dramatic or f anything that's being filmed and sitting quietly in your own home <laughs> writing a novel. Do, do you find you prefer one to the other? Do you like the balance of do, having both in your life? Which, 
which has the upper hand for you? Oh, that's really hard. I mean, I do, you know, the, the process of writing a book is, is a, I love the intimacy of, the, of that connection you have with your reader. Because I know how I feel when I open a book and I mm. get that shiver of anticipation and yeah. the author's going, hi, can I tell you a story? And you go, yes, yes, tell me a story. And I still get a thrill when that happens. And I, and I love the fact that that's what you have when you write a book. Having said that, I do turn into a bit of a feral slob when I'm writing. I mean, I'm in the same clothes for days and I'm wandering around like this and the outside world goes away and it drives me a bit nuts after a while. I mean, it has to be done, but I don't... If I just did that for the whole of my life, I would find it um, too lonely. Yeah. You know, I have to get back to theatre after that. I mean, that's where I... You know, the, com the communal experience of being creative with other people is actually what fires me and makes me able to go and write the books, I think. So the contrast is good. Yeah. Now, w without wanting to embarrass you, you, did, you got the CBE in May, and I wanted to bring it up because you said something really s lovely. You said that one of the reasons you accepted it was because of your parents. Yes, it was, really. I mean, my... I mean, it's hugely symbolic for them, probably more for well, me. Not that I'd want to be ungrateful. It's very nice to be honoured in that way. But I think my father was a refugee from partition and was in a refugee camp at 13 with his eight brothers and sisters. Sort of extraordinary to me that a generation later, mm -hmm. I'm trotting off to the palace to pick up a gong from the empire that my entire family fought against. It's <laughs> um, nice irony in there somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think for them it was a very visible symbol of the sacrifices were worth it because we came here for our children to have more opportunities and, well, here it is, you know. So for that reason, I, of course, I accepted it on their behalf, on behalf of that generation, actually, because they, they made the big journey and they put aside a lot of the, their artistic dreams to just have to do the terrible jobs no one else wanted to do in order for me to swan around pretending to be other people on stage, you know, <laughs> so I don't forget that sacrifice. Yeah. And, and just, I just noticed something I didn't ask you, which is uh, in the book you talk about India being the youngest nation and about how um, statistically that almost half the population is under 25, yeah. which I had no idea. Extraordinary, isn't And it? that the average age is, what, a 29-year-old city dweller. That's, that's almost the same as it's like having the baby boom generation. Yeah, totally. So, so there's going to come this point in the future where they're all going to either hit the workforce or hit, the, yeah. hit a certain age, and that'll bring another social change, won't totally. it? Totally. It's all going to happen. Watch this space. Mean, meanwhile, we have an aging population, don't we? And they are, yeah, yeah. everyone's looking east. It's tremendous. Because it's such a big room, and I know that it's filled with fans who all want to ask you questions. I'm going to stop now. I have other questions, but I think you probably have things to ask, Mira, and you don't need to hear me talking anymore. So we're, we're going to do is there's a roving mic. Raise your hands. We will get to as many. We have 20 minutes. We'll get to as many of you as you possibly can. I see a very fast hand up there. <laughs> Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, Pleasure. 
I wanted to ask about the relationship between, is it Shaima and Myla, and how significant to you it is that they're both of Indian origin? Because a lot of the stories that have come out about surrogacy present it as white Western women going to India. Is, is there any kind of um, significance in the fact that these two women are essentially from India? Yes, I mean, hugely. Uh, that, that is obviously the more obvious story, but I, I think... I mean, Sharma feels a great deal of, of colonial guilt about going to the country of her birth to hire someone to have a baby for her. It's, and she has a very complicated um, feeling about this, this whole transaction. And she, I don't think she'd feel that if um, she didn't have that, connect, that sort of genetic connection with India. And, I, and that's why the relationship between the women does grow in a more intimate way and does become an ever-shifting power balance because she can't just treat this as a business transaction. Her cultural connection to India and the fact that she regards herself a feminist is all incredibly complicated for her. So, yeah, it was, it was totally deliberate. And I wanted you to feel that they were almost different sides of the same coin. Another question? Oh, come on. You know you <laughs> want to pitch in. Here's one there's a question here in the front row. Hi, Mira. Um, Hi. We were talking about the surrogacy and how uh, these women carry babies and all that. But do you also talk about the emotional? Okay, they give the babies away who, who they're getting paid for. But what about the emotional needs? How do they feel? And the connection with what's happened to that child? Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's why it was so important to make Mala a, a, a very full and rich character. I mean, you totally, I hope, you totally get that through her journey. Um, Mala has a very distinct voice in the book, and you're often inside her head, and you're often seeing, you know, you'll have a sort of chapter from Sharma and then you will totally have the same events from Mala's point of view and inevitably has a very different take on it. But yes, it's, it is important. I mean, I, it's treated like a business, but at the end of the day, it's a child that you've carried in your body. And it's often the first question anybody that doesn't have to do that ask, especially anyone who's been a mother, how does that feel? How does that feel to hand over a life that you've nurtured for nine months and never have any contact again? I think you also very beautifully delineate this dilemma. Sharma becomes so obsessed with creating a new life that she's in danger of neglecting the daughter she's already given birth to. Yeah. And that whole mother-daughter, there's a lot of, there are a lot of mothers and daughters in this book. And I, I imagine being the daughter of a mother, this is something very close to your heart, these, these very sometimes troublesome relationships. Well, yeah, and it's a sort of valid one, I think. It's what you were saying about why, why do people have, have children? I mean, if you yeah. think, that, that, you know, what does that mean? What's, that, yeah. what's the symbol of the child? And in fact, one of Sharma's friends points it out to her. Are you sure you're not just having this baby because you haven't quite, quite got it right with the first one? Mm. And it causes a huge ruckus. But it's a valid question. Yep. There is a troubled young woman in that household, and their relationship is, is spiky. Yeah. But I wanted to explore that because, you know, anyone who's had a teenage daughter will know. It's not always easy. <laughs> or been a teenage daughter. Or been a teenager. <laughs> but I, wa I also wanted to see the, 
you know, what is it like to be a feminist mother, as Sharma was? She was part of that, you know, the 80s feminist movement, as I was. Mm -hmm. What is it like when you bring up daughters that think feminism is not relevant anymore? Yeah. And actually, you know, thinks that it's quite empowering for women like Katie Price to run her own business, and she's a great role model. I mean, you do hear things like that. Yeah. So, to, f to explore that relationship, and, and actually Tara's growing awareness, I suppose, finding mm. her own version, I think, I think was something that I'd seen happen, uh, you know, myself and a lot of other friends I have who've yeah. had daughters have wrestled with that. Yeah, I think, I think everyone does. I th I, that's the universality of it, isn't yeah. it? You know, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, there are fundamental human relationships. Yeah. yeah. Another question. From, oh, there's a hand here. There are hands at the back. Oh, now everyone's at it, right? Excellent. Bring it on. Hi, Mira. Thank you for that. Um, I was just wondering, what's it like being a mother a sort of second time around later in life? And did you do anything differently with your son than you did with your daughter? I'm a lot more tired. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, I suppose there are pros and cons. I mean, the cons are actually, of course, you've got a lot less energy. The pros are you've got more money to pay people to help you bring up the child, which I didn't have the first time round. So, and I think you're a lot more patient. I think you really appreciate it because you know how quickly it goes. And I have 13 years between my children, which, you know, is a really long time. So it's like, it's have, it's like having had two only children. Um, but so rewarding, such a sort of, you know, gift really and and the relationship between my two children despite their age gap is is really lovely so um and boys are so different oh my god <laughs> i sort of wish i'd had a boy first because i'd understand men a lot better <laughs> they're so simple aren't they <laughs> you think they're complicated but they're really simple it's like lots of praise lots of food man cave done <laughs> see you later um yeah, with my daughter, it's negotiation and complication and emotions and, you know, wonderful, but completely, completely different. So I feel like I've learned a lot. There are loads of hands back here. This is the aerobic portion where you run up and <laughs> pass. I think, yeah, if you can... Oh, there's two of you. Let's start here and then... For the feminists of my generation, we thought we were fighting the battle about the workplace and about career. And for my daughter's generation, and she's 28, she's talking about ownership of her body and not being objectified, looking at how little girls are being sexualized. Yeah. And it seems that we've gone backwards, not forwards. Is that how you see it? Sometimes you do worry about that. I, we just had a really different... We had really different battles. That seems an obvious thing to say, but I think a big... A big difference was we, we, we could make our mistakes in private. Um, social media has changed everything about growing up for young women, I think. There is not, I, there's not a young woman I don't know, and I, I, I would start from sort of 10, 11 onwards, that doesn't feel that it's all about how she looks, what other people think of her, um, popularity, connected, who's saying... 
Now, it's not that those things didn't happen at school for us, but we could leave them behind. There was space to heal and to actually be private. Everything is now commented on and objectified all the time, so I'm not surprised it's the major issue. I would not like to be a teenage girl now. I think it's so, so hard. And it's great that, it's great that our daughters know that. And if anything, you know, the lessons we've learned as the older generation of feminists, they're, they're not dead. We just, have to, we just have to apply them to this sort of new media age, I think. But it, it's, it's, it's all about that. I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be a teenage girl now. I almost feel like our battles were simpler. They were sort of more black and white, weren't they? There was somebody back yeah. here, and then I do see your hand in the back row, and I'll ask this gentleman if you can... Make your way while you're asking your question. Hello, Mira. Thank you so much for your presentation. I was wondering how much you feel surrogacy is uh, a whole example of the rich and the poor world coming together. And in the rich world, we have such high expectations. We feel we have a right to everything. And the poor world is busy surviving. Well, at the end of the day, it is, surrogacy is a, is a business. And, and it's supply and demand, unfortunately. Um, it's like we've outsourced fertility, like we've outsourced the call centers, you know. And, you know, what would make it equitable is if the surrogates were paid the same amount as a Western surrogate. Now then you could go, then, it, then we're talking about some kind of level playing field. But the big problem with surrogacy is there are no international laws at all. So it varies from country to country. It's actually illegal in some countries, completely. Um, and that's led to some terrible situations uh, in India where couples, there was a case of a, a, a French uh, man, I think, who um, had two, I think had twins, surrogate twins, landed back in his country and was told that it was illegal and the children were stateless and the children were put into care and he was prosecuted. I mean, ridiculous situations where parents have not have had children in India and have not been able to... They've been stateless. Those children have not existed in the eyes of the law in the country they've come from. So there's clearly a, a, a need to have some kind of international agreement on it because it's, you know, I, it's not going to go away. It, it's, it's here. And, and while there are rich, infertile people and poor, fertile people, it's going to happen. We can't stop it, I don't think. So all we can do is make it safe right so now and, and equitable, if that's possible. There's a very patient person back there with the microphone. Um, hi, Mira. It's really lovely to hear you today. Uh, and surreal because my mom's name is also Mira. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask, my favorite thing about that reading was how you switched so fluidly between accents. And, and there's a distinction between sort of the, the posh Indian doctor accent and the Mala accent and the Shama accent. Um, and I wanted to ask, when you're writing the characters, do you think them in their accents? And also, when you speak to relatives in India or when you're back in India, do you find yourself changing accents <laughs> as well? Yeah, all the time. It's really weird, especially on Skype, or we don't really phone anymore, but you, you'll say, hello, auntie, and she'll go, huh? And you go, hello, auntie! <laughs> Just make it much louder and in a really broad Indian accent. Uh, I can hear you. Why are you shouting? Um, <laughs> but that was part of my childhood. I mean, it's clearly why I you know, became an actress. But I used to switch masks all the time because 
you know, I grew up as a little Indian kid in a white working class mining village, so I would literally change masks as I went in the door. You know, outside, I'll be, hello, how are you doing? Let's go down the park. And I'd literally walk in the door and go, hello, mummy, I've done my homework. <laughs> and I realised, you know, actually, this is the best way to get through life. I'll just, you know, be the path of least resistance. So, I mean, and that's a great advantage of actually, you know, also being an actress, is when I write the characters, I do hear them. And I, and I imagine what it's like to play them. And so I try and give them... <laughs> You know, I try and make every line worthwhile, I suppose, and, and feel real. And I do, I do read the mouth I, I, when, I'm, when I'm writing. It's part of the fun, actually. Okay, there's a question in the front. Oh, another one back there and another two back there. So fastest finger first, so to speak, <laughs> if you pass that along. And then we'll, we'll come to this section. Hello? Are you still there? Uh, sorry, I'm just uh, relaying a question from my wife. Um, I was interested in the DV story. The DV story. With Tara. Ritara. With Tara. With Tara, sorry. Can you, tell, can you tell her more about that? The DV story, domestic yeah. violence. Domestic violence, yeah. With Tara. Yes. Um, I don't know how much I can give away. Uh, <laughs> what's the best way to put it? Um, Tara, as a 19-year-old woman, and as this lady so eloquently mentioned earlier, finds herself in that stage of many women of that age where she feels objectified and the pressure to be available and happy about it is all around her and it makes her vulnerable. So I wouldn't say it was an actually a domestic violence issue, but there is an incident which completely uh, changes the way she thinks about her body and how she has been lured into thinking that being available means that you're independent. I mean, it's, I think it's a mistake a lot of us made. Um, it ca kind of happened with the Ladette culture in the 90s, didn't it? That now we're all equal, we can behave exactly like men, and that means sexually, being sexually available all the time. Well, the men were going, great. <laughs> Works for us. Um, but actually, I mean, it was part of the process, I think, but it, it did some damage. I think we lost sight of what that original, that original movement was all about. There's a great film coming out about the suffragette movement, by the way, soon. I should mention that, with, uh, written by Abby Morgan, with Meryl Streep and all kinds of people in it. And that's coming out this autumn, and it's about, finally, the history of the suffragette movement, and it's supposed to be brilliant. Nothing to do with me. I thought I'd plug it. Because <laughs> I think we should take all our daughters to see it and remind them why it all happened and why it's precious, and we have to fight for it. I think we can get about two more questions, and then I saw hands over here. No? Hello. Um, just want to thank you very much for this morning and for your wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, it made me laugh and it made me cry. And best of all, it made me think about a lot of major issues, Thank but you. Uh, not in too heavy a way. Um, what I wanted to mention this morning in particular, um, which doesn't seem quite appropriate in amongst so many feminist issues and, uh, and discussions, but I liked the way you dealt with the men in the book. Um, I felt it was subtle. They weren't left to be 
too two-dimensional, apart from maybe the uh, Yarboy rapist. Um, <laughs> I thought Toby was a truly lovely character. Oh, and to me, it that. wasn't only, you know, he was obviously a young, fit guy, but um, the fact that he and Mala really came together through their love of nature and the land, I thought was extremely powerful. So I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I mean, I did... It was really important for me to get to get Toby right, um, because, because there's a reason Sharma's fallen in love with him. I mean, he's a good guy, and, and their desire to have a child is, is genuine and, and touching, and you, kind of, you want them. You want them to have this baby. Um, and also because there are so many good guys around, and without them, we can't go forward. This isn't just our issue. It's, it's you know, together, it's, we have to... We have to find the good ones, and there, there are a lot out there. I'm very heartened. I gave a talk at um, my son's school's feminist society. They have one. <laughs> and um, half of the people there were, were young men, which I just thought was absolutely brilliant. And they weren't there just to pull. <laughs> very important. There, there, there's somebody else in that area? <coughs> no? Oh, I dreamed it. Sorry. There are two people here with questions. We can probably get those in. Hello, Vera. Hi. Is it on? Uh-huh. Um, I just wanted to look forward a bit uh, to ask you what was in your pipeline now. Is it another 16 years to the next book? <laughs> what's keeping you occupied at the moment in projects that you're working on? Um, no, I really hope it isn't 16 years till the next one. I promise my publisher it won't be. Um, I've sort of got the seed of my idea for another one, so I might start thinking about that next year. Um, in the immediate future, I'm doing a bit of filming in Prague in a couple of weeks, and I'm looking for something in the theatre again, because I, I, I don't feel like a proper actress unless I'm doing theatre, actually. It's, I mean, I love the film work, it's fun, but that's what I miss. So um, there's a few things floating around for next year. And in the meantime, I guess I'm enjoying this bit of, the, of promoting the book. After all those months of solitude, it's quite nice to come blinking into the light and go, oh, I can talk to people about it now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's the immediate future. Yes. Hello, Mira. Um, if I'm a bit nervous, it's because I'm a little bit starstruck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, <Sweet>. don't be. <laughs> Um, I thought it was interesting the way that you said, you know, when you went home, you maybe had a, a kind of different personality to when you were outside with your mates. And, a, you know, I'm a second generation Indian and maybe the first generation are stuck in an India when they left. The second generation have these two sides of their personalities. And I wonder maybe if the third generation now are able to be a lot more authentic, they don't necessarily need to shift their personality depending on who they're with. And, you know, that might be quite liberating for them. I don't know if you have any views on that? I think you're absolutely right. And that, that, that's actually who Tara is, really, in the book. She's an unformed thing at the beginning of the book, but that's certainly part of her journey. She, her, you know, her issues aren't the issues that we had, which were, for example, me sort of having to fight to do an art subject rather than medicine. Um, <laughs> Or arranged marriage, in fact. I mean, interestingly, a lot of the third generation are choosing to approach their families to sort of help them find someone, but it's a much more sort of liberal, connected way of doing things. Or, in fact, they, of course, they choose their own partners. I mean, there are some things that are just 
just seem really old-fashioned now. And it, it's, it's quite hard. She can't quite believe it when I say, look, out of all my friends, when I was leaving university, I was the only one that did an art subject. And we all went to university, the only one. I was the only woman of colour in my entire drama department, in my entire English department. Um, and she find, I mean, my, my own daughter studied uh, drama and creative writing, and she was sort of stunned by that. And I said, it's all changed in a generation. You're, but that, you're, their issues are very different. I mean, anyway, sometimes it's easier to define who you are when you've got really big things to kick against, because you know what you don't want. I think for her, it's going to be a much more complex journey, actually, to find out what she wants to keep and what she wants to, to throw away, I suppose. Well, I, th I think we, we have to stop now. So what I'm going to do is recommend that anybody who has fills a question and is going to buy a book, ask it in the signing queue. Um, before I whisk Mira off to the book signing tent, I'd like to say thank you to Joe and thank you to Mira. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm really quickly. Sorry? That went so quickly, didn't it? Didn't it? So we'll go out. They'll come and take the mics off us. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.